The wildlife and its habitat cannot speak, so we must, and we will. You're listening to the Conservation Federation of Missouri podcast. Here's Executive Director Brandon Butler. Welcome to Conservation Federation Podcast Episode 5. Today I'm sitting down with Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase, President Chris Kostmeyer, and Secretary Steve Jones. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you, Brandon. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, we're really excited to cover this topic. This is a new organization that has been formed really to protect the wild deer of Missouri. If one of you want to jump in and give us the uh, 30,000 foot view of Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase. Sure. This is Chris. And Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase really has been a byproduct of an effort over the last several years by the Conservation Department to help manage and control the continued spread of CWD in Missouri. And if we backtrack to January of 2015, the Conservation Commission implemented some additional regulations to help oversee the captive servant industry. And a couple of primary regulation changes that they made were to prohibit the importation of service into the state of Missouri, as well upon transfer of ownership of a captive servant facility to require double fencing. And so that was all in an effort to protect the native deer that those captive service facilities have come in contact with in the past. And it really started with the initial breakout in Missouri and Macon County going back several years at this point. Those regulation changes were challenged by the captive servant industry immediately upon implementation in January of 2015, and they were granted, the captive servant industry, a temporary injunction prohibiting the implementation of those regulations later that summer. And so there were a group of concerned citizens that, knowing that the legal battle was going to take several years to come to fruition, because regardless of what happened in lower court, either side would most likely take it to the appellate court, and then depending on the outcome of that, most likely would end up in the Supreme Court. So a group of concerned citizens got together and formed Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase. And in Missouri, we are fortunate from a standpoint that you have the ability to constitutionally make changes to the laws in the state of Missouri through an initiative petition process. And so what we have done as we formed is created an initiative petition with the intent of being on the November 2018 ballot to allow the Missouri voters and the constituents in the state of Missouri to determine whether or not they're going to support the initiative petition that we're in the process of implementing and, and bringing forth. And really that initiative petition today is revolves around the same thing that the Conservation Commission tried to implement in January of 2015, and that is to establish constitutional oversight by the Conservation Commission. First and foremost, we believe that the Conservation Commission and the department should have oversight, regulatory oversight, certainly primary oversight of all big game species in the state of Missouri. And this initiative petition will, in fact, do that. And secondarily is to prohibit the further importation of big game species into the state or within the state through a grandfathered period. So our initiative, our effort, and the initiative petition itself is really circled around those two talking points. And that's the Conservation Commission oversight and the ability to prohibit further transportation of animals into the state or within the state. So that's a very detailed explanation of where we are today. Now, we can spend a significant amount of time talking about how we got to this point. I think we got to start at ground zero, and that's the average deer hunter just doesn't understand what's going on in the captive deer industry. They probably don't even recognize the fact that there's an industry around this. 
when you hear about canned hunting or captive hunting, somebody will say, you know, who am I to say how somebody else hunts a deer? And they leave it at that. But they have no knowledge about the spread of devastating diseases. They have no knowledge about political shenanigans that are going on surrounding this industry and the practice of farming deer for captive killing. There's so much more to it than the average citizen even begins to understand. We're seeing continuous fights in the legislature here in Missouri, but in other states as well, North Carolina, Indiana, West Virginia. I mean, this is something that is going across the country. And many states that actually have a big industry, such as Texas, Florida, others, they've already closed their borders to the importation of live deer. And that's because this disease can spread in a trailer. If you bring a diseased deer from one herd to the next, that disease comes with it. Now, there's already regulations in place that keep us hunters from bringing in dead deer to our state from CWD endemic zones. So if you go out to Colorado and kill an elk, you can't bring that whole elk back into the state. It has to be boned out meat. So we can't bring a dead animal in, but this industry is still capable of bringing live animals in and putting at risk the entire wildlife species of white-tailed deer in the state of Missouri. Yeah, chronic wasting disease is a potentially devastating disease for the future of wild deer. And it's the industry that is in the business of shipping these animals around on stock trailers is doing a very good job of manipulating legislatures and courts all across the country, just as they did here in Missouri, to get what they needed, which was kind of why we decided we needed to put this back in the hands of the Missouri voters, the same way that the Conservation Department was created back in 1936, and the same way we got the Design for Conservation Sales Tax in in 76. We thought maybe it's time for the people to speak again because we knew we weren't going to get relief from the legislature and probably not from the courts. Chronic wasting disease is so complicated. We could have a whole podcast or 10 to just explain how chronic wasting disease works. But the bottom line is there's things that we absolutely do know about the disease. For one thing, it's 100% fatal. For another thing, there's no such thing as immunity. And any deer that gets it is going to die, but it doesn't show symptoms until it's already been sick for about 18 months. But during that whole time, it is contagious. It spreads the the infectious agents, which are called prions. It spreads them into the soil and the environment where they persist for years, literally years, and remain infectious. That all adds up to the reason that the industry cannot safely move these animals around. They cannot know whether or not they're moving a sick animal. There is no effective live test. You can't really test them effectively until after the animal has died already. So with no effective live test, 18-month gestation before they show symptoms, it's just not possible to move these animals around without risking spreading disease which is the very way it got to Missouri, almost certainly. The industry says things about, well, CWD's always been there. We're just finding it now because we're testing for it, which is just not correct. That that is not true. In Missouri, we were testing for CWD statewide starting in 2001, and the very first positive was found inside a pen in Lynn County in 2010. So they'd been testing for nine years, over 26,000 negative CWD tests statewide, all across the state, for almost a decade. Zero CWD found. So we found it in a pen, and then we found it in another pen nearby the year after, and then the year after that we found it in five, I believe it was five wild Missouri deer within two miles of one of those pens. So 
you know, they just don't make coincidences that big. It's clear. The circumstantial evidence is absolutely clear that that industry brought CWD to Missouri, and every truckload of deer they bring in risks another new outbreak. And this is part of a family of prion diseases that includes mad cow disease and scrapie in sheep. And scientists, they all go back to 1967 in Fort Collins, where a scrapie-infected sheep herd was removed from a pen and deer were put in. And the belief is, is that prion was able to fold itself and manipulate its way into chronic wasting disease in deer. And it's spread from, from that endemic zone out into Wyoming, where now they're actually estimating population eradications in 50 years from this disease. That's right. Yeah, there's one, one herd in Converse County, Wyoming, that they've been studying extensively. And they've had it for about 40 years there in that herd. And they're, they have now demonstrated it is actually reducing the size of the herd. And they, they think it could be that herd could be locally extinct in 40 or 50 more years. The one thing that's hard for people to understand about CWD is it's, it's very slow. It's incredibly persistent, but super slow. It's not something that those of us that are listening to me right now are going to necessarily see the extinction of deer in Missouri. And maybe an extinction would never happen. But almost certainly, if we don't get control of this disease, deer hunting is going to look very, very different for our kids or our grandkids than it looked for us. We could be looking at a very long, slow slope of population declines until possibly hunting is no longer viable if anybody even wants to hunt a predominantly diseased herd of animals. Right. I'm not going to actually pursue deer in an area that is seriously infected with this disease and then take that infected deer meat and put it on a table and feed it to my children. I'm just not going to do that on purpose. To put it into context of human beings, what we're doing is essentially consider taking a patient with Ebola, which is something we went through here in America a couple of years ago. And those people, they're quarantined. They're quarantined for a reason because that disease is transmissible very easily. Well, this disease is very easily transmissible to deer. It would be the equivalent of taking a person with Ebola and putting them in a gymnasium full of people and locking the doors. Eventually, everyone in that gymnasium would have that disease. And that's what's happening in these confined servant operations. There was a farm in Iowa where a buck was shipped from the breeding facility to the shooting facility. It was killed, tested, tested positive for CWD. They went back and then tested the herd in the breeding facility. And like 80% of the deer in that facility had chronic wasting disease. Well, there was even a, a more shocking step in between once they found that that herd was infected. And they said, we've got to come in here and we've got to depopulate this facility. The owner fought it legally, tooth and nail. I can't recall how long the uh, legal battle was, two or three years maybe. And it's when the legal battle was over that they were finally able to go in and depopulate that pen. That's when it was at 80%. So at the time when they started that, it was certainly much, much lower than that. The public cost of this disease is, is enormous. In Missouri alone, just this year in Missouri, CWD cost the Department of Conservation over $2 million in taxpayer money just to manage the disease as it is now. And that's not counting the legal fees. The legal fees, trying to defend against the confined servant 
industry, just for the initial court case, it was over three quarters of a million dollars. We don't even know yet what the current appeals process is going to cost or what the Supreme Court appeal will wind up costing if the MDC doesn't prevail in the appeals court. So these are tremendously huge public costs to these. And we still are very fortunate enough to have an extremely low prevalence rate of CWD. I mean, it's less than 1%. And that's because our Department of Conservation (laughs) attacked the disease in the areas where it was found. Absolutely. There are certain ways that you can effectively attack CWD. Nobody yet knows a way to get rid of it, but there are ways to manage it, and Missouri is doing it the right way, uh, similar to what uh, Illinois is doing. Uh, New York was very successful with it. Very different than the way that it's been handled in states like Wisconsin and Arkansas and Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, where they're dealing with much, much larger percentages. Because once it gets firmly established in the environment and you start talking about 5 or 10% infection rates, management becomes much less effective and much more expensive. One of the things I think that is important for people to understand that may not have to date been a part of the containment efforts is to understand how contagious that this actually is and the challenges that come along with trying to curtail the the spread of it. And so to give the listeners an, an understanding here in Missouri and the conservation department's efforts to contain it, in essence, every time that there is a positive that is found, and this started in Lynn County in Macon, Missouri, and several years ago, is that they implement a 25-mile radius around that point of positive. And then in donut ring style, from the point of positive, the intent and the goal is to significantly reduce the deer numbers. And then in that donut ring style, the further out that they go is still to thin the herd, but maybe not to the same degree as at the point of impact, that initial positive. And the reason for that is, is that the way to contain this is to limit, severely limit the number of deer that inhabit that landscape. And as Steve said a moment ago, because it's a prion-based disease, it stays in the soil, it stays in the plant life at the area that has been infected for years and years and years. And so the way to keep future deer from coming in contact with the disease is simply to eliminate them. And under normal dispersal type of movement, deer can move many miles. And so if they're at a point where there is contaminated soil or contaminated deer, they may, through disbursement, go several miles away from that area and then possibly infect another deer. And so the quality of the deer hunting in Missouri, I think, has been affected. If you look at the number of positives that have happened around the state and the number of counties that are currently in containment, there's been a significant undertaking to reduce the number of deer in those impacted areas, which has had a variety of additional other negative concerns, including land values, the hunting, recreational use of those lands in specific areas that have been a positive source of CWD has continued to really impact the values of those recreational lands. And so it's a very far-reaching type of a consequence that the containment effort has been successful to date. To Steve's point, small percentage of the deer are currently infected in Missouri, but the containment effort is, from a deer hunter's perspective, something that is very challenging. Well, there's so many different ways that we can go with this conversation, from ethics to science to individual interests and special interests. I just want average deer hunter listening to understand that if you say, I'm not opposed to canned hunting. You're not just talking about the final act of pulling the trigger on that deer. You're not just talking about somebody shooting a deer behind the fence. You're talking about the whole process of growing that deer, raising that deer, transporting that deer, and then all the dangers that come with it. So 
when you form your opinion on whether or not you're for or against this specific type of what some people refer to as hunting, I choose to refer to it as captive killing, you have to understand that it's a much bigger issue than simply killing deer inside of a high-fence facility. That's absolutely true. These animals inside the facilities, they are raised very differently than a natural wild deer is raised. They're genetically manipulated through selective breeding, line breeding, intensive line breeding, specifically for antler size and no other trait. If they lose the ability to flee predators or whatever, nobody's ever going to know that. All of the various strengths of a genetically healthy wild deer, they're only paying attention to one trait of those deer, and that's the antler size. And if that makes that deer sick or weak, they prop it up with medicine and hypernutrition. You wouldn't necessarily know it, but that deer, when it escapes, it might not even be strong enough to survive in the wild. And there is a consistent amount of escapes from these facilities, about 30, 40, 50 a year. These animals escape from these facilities, and that's just the reported ones, so the ones that we found out about, who knows how many unreported ones. And about a third of those animals are never recovered. Nobody ever knows whatever happens to them, but they're out there spreading their unnatural genetics and whatever diseases they're carrying into the wild herd. And it's a, it's a serious threat. We spent generations and millions of dollars on this fantastic conservation success story we have in Missouri where there was only 400 deer left in Missouri in 1925 and now we've got well over a million and now we're squandering it for people that can't be troubled to go out and and have a real hunt they have to get out the checkbook and buy an animal off of a menu and be able to walk out and have somebody point it out to them and shoot it inside a pen. It's, it's, it's just offensive to the very nature of what hunting really is. So when I communicate about this issue, there's often responses, letters to the editor coming from professionals within the industry and their PR firms and stuff, questioning how we could talk about something we, we know nothing about, saying that you've never been on one of these deer farms. Well, how do you know I've never been on one of these deer farms? I've been on these deer farms, specifically in Michigan, been part of a rider's camp a couple of different times at one of these facilities a few years ago where it was a product shoot and you know we were there for a few days and the deer were just something else to look at while you were there threw corn out to him had him come up and eat corn out of your hand had the owner tell me in a braggadocious way how in one day a group would fly in and pay twenty five thousand dollars for four deer and fly out They come in, they know which deer they're going to kill before they get there. Those deer have names. They've been bottle-fed, petted like a dog, and then turned over to be executed by somebody pretending to be a hunter. It would be like paying money to shoot the dogs out of the kennel club dog show like oh, that that's a good one you know twenty five thousand for that one and then what are you going to do you're going to mount it and put it behind your desk and tell somebody what a great hunter you are because you essentially killed a pet so that's getting away from the science and more into the personal ethics and morals of killing these deer that have been raised in captivity and don't have the predatory fears that the wild animals have essentially eliminating the necessity of hunting itself you're shooting a live target you're picking out what you want and you're killing that deer and it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars it's nothing that the average hunter is going to do it's nothing that you know the guy at walmart buying a box of shells the weekend before 
the opener is going to go do for $10,000. But yet they'll say, well, I'm not going to impede on somebody else's desire to go do it. Well, that industry very well is impeding on your future and your children's future and your grandchildren's future to hunt the wild deer that you're going to go out and take a chance on. So don't think you're doing anybody a favor by taking that side. Because they're certainly not doing you any favors. Well, the confined killing is offensive to many, many hunters to two different degrees. I'm frankly disgusted by a lot of what goes on inside those pens. But honestly, if that industry could conduct its business without posing a threat to the wild resource, I probably wouldn't say anything about it. The real problem is that it poses a serious long-term threat to the viability of hunting wild deer in North America. And that's just the truth of the matter. And I think that one of the things that Missouri has is a, a very unique heritage when it comes to hunting. You know, I come from a family of hunters and, and started at a very early age. And my father and my brother and, you know, now my kids and wife and circle of friends and family, it, it, it is truly a heritage. It's a family bonding time that each deer season, this annual passage comes and goes that really brings families together, allows them to pursue white-tailed deer in the state of Missouri. And, and going back, and not to date myself, but the very first year that I went deer hunting, I can remember the daily updates on the radio as far as the deer kill. And the annual season total, the year that I started, was about 30,000 animals were harvested for the season. And so you take a look at where it is that Steve's point earlier, 400 deer in Missouri. And then when the season first started, as I came into the sport, significantly fewer numbers were harvested than they are today. But it really comes down to that heritage, the hunting heritage of going out, bonding that comes along with the hunting. And actually, whether you get one or not is really a, a irrelevant. It's the opportunity to bond with family and time spent together and woodsmanship and all of the things that come along with it. When you have the risk associated with not proactively trying to slow. I purposely use the word slow because I think at this point, the cat's out of the bag. CWD is here. And so it's not a matter of eradicating it today. There's there's no cure for it. Our effort, and I think that we're the focus of Missouri, hunters and non-hunters alike are, is that we have this wonderful resource in the state of Missouri. Generations of people have been stewards of the land that they own and conservation activities to really support the continued growth of those animals over time. And it's at risk. And so we have to take seriously the CWD breakout in the state of Missouri, understand the risks associated with it, understand that there are things that we can do individually and collectively to continue to slow its spread. And I think that that's exactly why it is that we have formed the organization that we have formed. We want to educate people about this disease. We want to make sure that we protect our hunting heritage. And we want to make sure that people in the state of Missouri have an opportunity for their voice to be heard. Because if we don't do this, the continued spread of the disease is going to accelerate. And the inability of the Conservation Commission and the Conservation Department to oversee all big game species is a significant risk. We talked a little bit earlier about the legislature being a problem in Missouri. Well, if the legislature had it their way, and there's currently legislation pending that would transfer oversight of captive cervids from the Department of Conservation and the Conservation Commission to the Ag Department. They're wanting to label these captive animals as livestock. Well, the Ag Department doesn't have the resources, the expertise, and you mentioned the science behind all of this, to really manage or to curtail or slow its continued spread. The Department of Conservation does, and the Conservation Commission does. And so we have to proactively take steps to make sure that we are aligned 
with our heritage, our hunting ability, and the conservation efforts in the state of Missouri to continue to make sure this animal is available to us. But the heritage is already being impacted by this disease in the sense that all three of us are landowners. Steve in Randolph County and Chris in Sheridan County. I just sold land in Sheridan County and relocated down to Shannon County because you can no longer supplementally feed. You can no longer put out mineral licks. You can't do anything that would unnaturally concentrate deer. And that's because in those concentrated areas outside of a fence, because you can still do it inside of a fence where concentration is essentially mandatory. But outside of a fence, you can't put out a corn pile in the winter. You can't put out minerals in in the summer to try to stimulate antler growth. The other fun thing about that is being able to try to run trail cameras over those sites. You can't do that to monitor your herd anymore. So all of us on the outside of the fence are affected, but those on the inside are still congregating and feeding and trail cameraing. But our heritage has been impacted that way. And I think one of the things that emphasized that point about the restrictive nature of some of these containment efforts, and I spoke earlier about the really the, the thinning of the deer head almost to the point of annihilation at the, at the point of positive and then out in donut rings to continue to thin that herd. One of, I think, the biggest advantages that Missouri had to foster a healthy, balanced deer herd was several years ago implement a four-point restriction. And the intent behind that regulation statewide was really to prohibit younger deer from being killed as a year and a half or two and a half year old deer in an effort to let that deer reach its maximum potential. Well, part of the containment efforts now, they immediately pull that four-point restriction off of those that are in the containment zone. And so, to your point, the restrictive nature of the regulations for containment are extensive to the point about not being able to supplemental feed or to provide minerals. They overissue doe tags in an effort to thin the herd. The four-point restriction has been taken off so that they can neutralize as many of the young bucks as they possibly can because those are the animals that typically, through disbursement, especially during the breeding season, will cover a lot of territory, and it's not uncommon for them to travel miles and miles in search of a receptive doe. Well, if that animal is contaminated, then the risk associated with the movement obviously increases further contamination and the contraction of CWD and animals outside of that core area. So it is an extensive containment effort that is really restrictive for those that own the land and those that really enjoy the pursuit of whitetail. And those regulations that they've introduced have been a real hindrance to a lot of the progress that I think the state of Missouri has made over the last 10 to 15 years. It's also been an economic depression, which is a language all of our elected officials understand. You have these small feed stores in rural towns that are no longer selling supplemental feed and minerals. Sporting goods stores are no longer selling as many trail cameras. They're not selling feeders like they were. All of those different impacts add up to being an extremely negative thing for the general hunting public. The, the recreational value of the, of the property owned by the landowners is, is dropping in the CWD zone. My farm in Randolph County, I closed on that one week before it was declared a CWD zone. I haven't had it appraised since then. I don't know how that impacts our value, but I know it's certainly not positive. Just to be clear, you mentioned that Chris and I are landowners, as are you. You know, we raise cattle on our farms. We've got row crops. I know I am, and I, I believe Chris is very, strongly supports private property rights, the rights of a property owner to benefit from, from the ownership of their property. But you can't decide you're going to become a uh, radioactive waste site and say, you know, that's my right. I get to put whatever I want on my property without the, any responsibility for the impact that has on the public at large. 
private property rights don't extend that far. No, I think your private property rights end when they start infringing upon all the private property rights of the people surrounding you. Absolutely. And make no mistake, this industry is going to do everything possible to defend its right to keep on threatening our potential for deer hunting going on into the future outside of those fences. And there's there's about 40 of the uh, shooting preserves in Missouri right now. People are shocked to hear that. But only, but only 20 of them are actively operating. And there's about 200 of the breeding preserves that provide the fodder for the guys to fly in and shoot. And again, I've been told that out of that 200, there's only about 10 that are full-time operational, making their entire family living off of that. Most of them are just hobbyists that have a deer for a pet, or they take pictures of a couple deer every year. I mean, when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, there's... There's less than 40 actual operations that are feeding families across this state. Well, and I think it's important, too, that, that we spend a minute on the family-owned businesses because I am as pro-business as anybody that you will ever meet. I do think that there is to a couple of the previous comments about the responsibility of land ownership and making sure that you're not doing anything on that land that's going to harm it or surrounding properties. But there, there are family businesses in the state of Missouri that this industry revolves around. And so the effort that, that we have underway is not an effort to put them out of business. The effort is to restrict the movement of animals within the state and from outside of the state into the into Missouri in an effort to control any possible contamination of CWD. It does not prohibit those businesses from selling those animals for meat purposes, as long as they are processed at a USDA-approved facility. doesn't prohibit the additional use of body parts that may come from those animals if they raise them. Really, the effort is limited to not being able to transport the animals within the state to the shooting preserves so that they go from a breeding facility into a shooting preserve or bringing the animals in from out of state. So there, there's still an opportunity for those family-owned businesses that have a desire long-term to stay in it. It's just not the opportunity to move those animals inside of the state or bring new animals in. You mentioned the people raising them for meat. A lot of people don't realize this, but right now in Missouri, elk are legally classified as livestock. There's a bill you referred to in the legislature that would reclassify all privately owned cervids, which is elk, deer, mule deer, axis deer, psycho deer, fallow deer, all these various species of deer that are raised for this industry, would reclassify all of them as livestock, which would mean that they all could be raised for meat. Right now, it's only elk. And right now, elk are being raised commercially for meat in Missouri and, and slaughtered under USDA inspection. They would still be able to continue that under the petition that we have underway right now. But one other key factor that in the petition that we're proposing is it grants the Missouri Conservation Commission primary regulatory authority over all servants, whether they're inside or outside the fence. So that would make clear that it's the Department of Conservation who is responsible to look out for the future of wild deer in Missouri. They would be the one making the decisions that affect the disease risk for the public resource. So we've established that CWD is a really bad disease. It's potentially catastrophic years down the road. A lot of people don't recognize that right off because it's not a disease that you see the impacts of overnight. It takes years for these deer to die. And truthfully, as the industry says, most of these deer do die from a hunter bullet or some other cause of death before CWD takes over. But left alone, they will die eventually from this disease. Now, 
we've established that something has to be done. Our elected officials aren't helping us. And you guys have taken it upon yourselves as citizens to rally as many citizens together to make that change. And you said 2018, which is quite a ways off, but coming up quick. What do the steps look like between now and then? And what is Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase going to have to do to be successful in this initiative? Brandon, that's a great question. When Steve and I first started having some conversation about possibly things that we could do to help steer the future of CWD in the state of Missouri, the initiative petition process and the ability to actually do this is somewhat unique. Not every state actually has this. A lot of states will have a statutory way to to legislatively make changes, but constitutional amendments are something that is fairly unique. And the process, quite honestly, is fairly extensive and and rightfully so. When you talk about making an amendment to the constitution of your state, it it shouldn't be treated as willy-nilly. And certainly our learning over the last year and a half has proved that in the case of Missouri, it's not. And so there are very specific steps and timelines that need to be met in order for this to show up on the ballot in November of 2000. 18, and we're, we're glad to say that we're right on track with that. But the first process is really submitting to the Secretary of State my request for an initiative petition and specifically what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And the Secretary of State then takes that request and creates what's called ballot summary language. And so what ultimately will end up on the ballot as constituents go in and vote. And so it's important that that ballot summary language be understandable in a condensed version. And so we actually filed multiple versions of the initiative petition dating back to November of 2016. And the ballot summary language, once it's completed, is returned. The Secretary of State also does a fiscal review. What's the financial impact of the state of Missouri based on the request? And then once that ballot summary language is completed, the fiscal review is done. You're then required to start a signature gathering process which requires in the state of Missouri, 8% of registered voters have to sign a petition of support. And so that's across all districts, but six of eight out of those districts have to achieve that 8%. In the state of Missouri, it's roughly 211,000 with a little bit of a fudge factor built in to gather signatures in support of what you're trying to get on that ballot in November of 2018. So the signature gathering process for us is going to start summer of 2017. Just to clarify, you're talking about U.S. congressional districts. So there's eight United States congressional districts in Missouri. Right. You can ignore two of those eight. You have to focus on six of those congressional districts and get the 8% of registered voters to sign your petition in those six districts. Yeah, it's actually not registered voters. It's the 8% of the number of voters that vote in the last gubernatorial election. So the signature gathering process is going to start in the summer of 2017. Once those signatures are gathered, they actually go back to the state for certification. Upon verification that the signatures are in fact accurate, that certification is granted, which then allows the ballot summary to be posted on the, the ballot in November of 2018. And so at this point, what we're focused on is the signature gathering, the ballot summary language and the initiative petition fiscal reviews are complete at this point. And so our next step is the signature gathering and then the certification of those signatures to get us on the ballot in November of 2018. So what happens if you're successful? Well, that's the whole beauty of this whole thing. It's not Chris's opinion or Steve's opinion or Brandon's opinion. The beauty of an initiative petition is it allows the constituents of Missouri to make a decision whether or not they're going to support. And it's a simple majority support of this proposition when it comes on the ballot in November of 2018. So the voice of Missourians are going to be heard. 
But what's the implementation process like? So if it goes on the ballot and it passes, what does an implementation of a constitutional amendment look like? It becomes effective immediately. And with a point of clarification, the way that we have the initiative petition language designed is that upon passage, it becomes effective. We also have included in that language a grandfather period to allow these businesses a period of time to disperse the inventory of animals that they have, which should alleviate some of the financial burden that comes along with that. And so although it becomes effective immediately, they will have an opportunity and a window of time to take the animals that they have and sell them. So Missouri is one of the few states, I believe it's 19 in the country, that has a citizen's initiative petition process, meaning citizens can bypass elected officials and change the constitution of our state. It's not an easy process, as we're learning through this Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase. It takes a serious outpour of not only volunteer support, but also fundraising. And you're talking large, large dollars to be able to collect these signatures, to get all the legal work done on the front end, and then the anticipation of legal work on the back end. You guys aren't being paid a dollar for what you're doing. This is a purely voluntary effort. I think Steve's got a great quote that if you've got gray in your beard, we're not doing this for you. This is something to help preserve our hunting heritage for generations down the road. Baseline, why are you guys doing this? Why the huge outlay of time and support and fundraising and meetings and miles and everything that's going into it? I think for me, I I became interested in CWD when our family farm was first identified in the initial containment zone. I was not well-versed, unlike Steve. He's been writing about CWD for decades and is extremely knowledgeable as to the disease and the risks associated with it. For me, it was really a learning experience that started with just that. I became part of the containment zone, and suddenly the, the antler restriction was gone. Supplemental feeding was no longer allowed. They were over-issuing doe tags. And for the first time, I started to inquire just inquisitively about what is this thing called CWD and why is there such an uproar and why is the conservation department acting this way? And as I said earlier, I'm a lifelong deer hunter. I was brought up in a family of deer hunters. My family is uh, enjoys deer hunting. I pursue whitetails with a passion. Our family farm has been known to, to do all of the things that are now prohibited in an effort to create a healthy, balanced deer herd for years and years. And so for me, it was personal. I educated myself as to what this thing called CWD is and found out through the work of the Conservation Federation of Missouri and and Steve Jones specifically and became actively engaged knowing that I couldn't idly sit by and not do anything. The the risk of the hunting heritage and my love for the outdoors and specifically the white-tailed deer would not allow me to sit back and hope that somebody else does something. And as the Conservation Commission and the Conservation Department was challenged legally by the captive servant industry, our conversations quickly turned to, as citizens, what can we do? And we are fortunate in the state of Missouri that this is an option and we are pursuing it with vigor. It is a full-time position. Steve literally has an office that he spends every hour of every day during the week focused on this effort. And we have a great board. We have a great group of volunteers. We've got people that really understand the importance of this and are willing to help. And we hope that quite honestly, that's what happens with the listeners that we're reaching through this podcast is that we do need engagement. We need advocacy and we need fundraising. We need an opportunity to to do all of those things well so that we can all have a voice come November 2018. So there's roughly 520,000 licensed deer hunters in Missouri each year. Those 520,000 deer hunters purchase roughly 1.3 million tags. 
That's you having three and you having two and me having one, but collectively well over a million tags. We've talked about apathy many times before, just how the general public goes about their business trying to pretend that nothing's wrong. Well, something's wrong here. And everybody that cares about deer hunting, everybody that hopes to pass this tradition on to their children and their children's children, you might not be able to step up and lead this organization like Chris and Steve or or take away from your daily activities, but you can give $5, $5. If 10,000 people gave $5, that would be a big help. If 100,000 people gave $5, it'd be a bigger help. If you could give $20, $25, $30, $50, I know some checks have come in for well over $1,000. But whatever you can do, I mean, just try to summon it within yourself to see down the road further than you know what you're going to enjoy and what you're going to experience and try to help protect this incredible resource. Think of all the times you've been out deer hunting, all the joy that you've gotten from it. And consider the fact that it could seriously be changed dramatically for future generations. How do people go about giving you that $10 bill? Well, uh, the best way would be to go to our website, which is fairchasemissouri.com, fairchasemissouri.com. And there's a lot of good information there. Look at our news section. But uh, just about every page has a nice big donate button on it. You click that donate button, you'll be brought to a page where you can donate online if you like, or you can see where to mail your donation if you prefer to do it that way. We are a nonprofit organization, but we're not a charitable organization, so this is not a tax-deductible donation. But we're a 501c4, and all the money that we get is going to go towards educating the public about this and supporting the efforts to get the changes made that we need to have made to, to protect the wild resource. Can you give a, a few examples of how you're spending money? This is such a complicated process. I'll tell you, Chris and I have learned so much in the last year. Besides lawyers. <laughs> well, we, we actually self-funded um, the startup cost. So we thought it was important enough that we took it upon ourselves to fund the creation of the nonprofit and do the legal work and look to hiring some firms to help us quarterback the, the project. And thankfully, that sustained us to the point that the fundraising could begin and, and donations um, start to come in. But really, the money's all of it is being spent on attorney's fees, which obviously are expensive to get something like this set up. The majority of what will be spent will be spent in, in two ways. One of it is the signature gathering. It's a very expensive proposition to gather the signatures. And what we're going to be doing is a, a hybrid of volunteer work along with paid signature gatherers. And the reason for that is, is that the money spent will be well worth it because the professional services, when rendered, do a much better job than a volunteer force gaining signatures that, in fact, will end up being certified, a double-digit type of improvement. And so it's expensive to gather the signatures. That's where the bulk of the initial money is going to be spent. Obviously, the legal fees associated with this. And then on the back end, the dollars in excess of what it costs for Legal counsel, as well as the quarterbacking firm and signature gathering, will spent on the education as we near the November 2018 election. So any monies that we end up with that aren't paid in those things that I mentioned will spend in media. That's our intent. I, I do think it's important to your point, Brandon, is it really doesn't matter what you send. 
as long as you send something. What I would encourage everyone to do that's listening is to not sit back and say, well, somebody else will send that $5 or $10 or $50. We need everybody that hears this not only to send a couple of bucks or what they can afford, but also to create advocacy. And talk to your friends. Talk to your family. Talk to the people that you hunt with or people that you know that hunt and make them aware of what it is that we're doing. Because almost as importantly as the dollars is the advocacy. We need to spread the word about what it is that we're doing, why it is that we're doing it, and why it's important to hunters and non-hunters alike. I want to circle back and just talk about a little bit about why I'm doing this and why I think it's important that everybody help us out here. Uh, I wasn't uh, fortunate enough to be raised in Missouri. I, I grew up uh, hunting uh, ducks and pheasants out in California. When I wound up in Missouri in the early 80s, that was the first time I ever encountered deer or turkey. And the first deer I took in 1987 with my bow was a natural thrill that changed me in a fundamental way. And I, I cannot help but think that I owe to the environment, to the habitat, to those animals. I have to pay back for that. It's, a, it's an instinctive thing that I, I cannot deny. So I know everybody that goes out and hunts, once you pick up the bow or the gun or whatever, you feel a little bit of that thrill too. And I, I encourage you to act on that by visiting the website, clicking the donate button and, and helping us out. It's a very important thing and, and we're very uh, proud and happy to be doing this on behalf of the future of hunting and, and we hope you can help us. Well, I for one appreciate the efforts that you guys are putting forward and I know that my children will see the benefits of it and hopefully generations to come after that. We talked a little bit about the media. Steve's a, a writer. Uh, obviously, I'm a writer and a, a content generator as well. But I think we've got really good support across the state through the Missouri Outdoor Communicators and a number of our, our personal contacts that you're going to start seeing a lot more about this organization. We're just starting to kind of open the gate and let the public into what's been going on as far as the formation of Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase. But when we go around and just talk to people casually and in, in group settings, the support is off the charts. And then, of course, we funded a poll, and the poll results are also extremely impressive, showing that the average citizen is on our side. We have good reason to be optimistic. One thing we want to say is that Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase is an affiliate of the CFM. Chris and I started, actually, we co-chair the CFM's Chronic Wasting Disease Committee, which has been in, in existence for, I don't know how long, uh, several years. When we decided to do this, we realized it was going to need to be a small and agile and independent organization. So we formed Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase, but it is an affiliate of the CFM. And the CFM has been very supportive, has been in from the very beginning, helped us out with some some of our initial initial costs. The executive committee has been very supportive. The board passed a resolution in strong support of what we're doing at, at the convention last February. So we're not just a couple of crazy, crazy uh, rednecks out here doing this on our own. We've got the CFM behind us. So let me explain what an affiliate is to people that may not be aware. So the Federation is truly an organization made up of organizations. Now we have individual members and that that number is growing significantly. We have about 5,000 individual members at CFM. We think that number should be so much higher, but in the last few years, we've really made strides in growing that. But the true strength of the Federation is in the fact that we have 90 or 91, as of yesterday, affiliated organizations, meaning specific interests joining together under an umbrella to collectively battle for conservation and natural resources. So the Conservation Federation brings together the Missouri Parks Association, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, Whitetails Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, the Smallmouth Alliance, 
Audubon Society, Coalition for the Environment, the Trappers Association, on and on and on. Ninety of these different organizations collectively banding together to say, we care about trapping, we care about birds, we care about parks, but overarchingly, we all care about the environment, natural resources, and our opportunities and privileges to utilize those open spaces and our wildlife and our fisheries. So being an affiliate of CFM joins you with all of these other like-minded organizations under this umbrella, and then we march forward together. So it's a, a really important point of the Federation to emphasize the fact that we're made up of these other organizations. And if anybody out there listening is part of a conservation organization or environmental organization or an agriculture organization that has concerns for conservation and natural resources, there's much more room under the umbrella. Get a hold of CFM, get a hold of me, Lori Coleman, our membership director, and inquire about becoming an affiliate. Because the more organizations we get under this umbrella, the stronger we become. And I think that's one of the things that we're very much focused on as well. I, I spoke a few minutes ago about advocacy, that it really is about advocacy and, and fundraising. And to your point about the affiliate groups under the CFM umbrella, one of the things that Steve and I on the board are very focused on is, is creating advocacy for what it is that we're doing both locally here in Missouri, as well as nationally through conservation organizations that support what it is that we are doing. And I think that it's important to understand that what we're doing is not unprecedented. There are currently 15 states around the country that prohibit the movement of animals into their borders. And so we're not paving a new road here. What we're doing is saying that we're going to, like other states, take the information that's available act on it and create something in the Midwest like what it is that the southeast part of the United States has already done, which is to be the first in the Midwestern part of the United States to create a transportation ban. But we believe that it, it, it's not just a Missouri battle. This disease is national. It's worldwide. There are a lot of effort underway in a variety of different states and a variety of different formats to curtail its continued spread. And so this is not just a Missouri battle. We're, we're advocating at this point for Missouri, but it's a national battle and we're looking for national advocacy. And that's part of what it is that our focus is on today is those national organizations to help us spread that word. Well, Steve and I just attended a national meeting about chronic waste and disease in Nashville, hosted by the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, which is one of our sister affiliates to the National Wildlife Federation. So there was National Wildlife Federation staff, but there was major players from across the deer industry across the country. Brian Murphy, the CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association, Nick Penziato from the National Deer Alliance, Matt Dunphy, just some of the biggest names in in the deer world, deer biology world. The sad takeaway from that meeting was the fact that collectively we went around the table and, and basically agreed that moving forward, trying to educate the public about the best scientific information isn't really getting us where we need to go. We need to start talking about things that resonate more with the average hunter, the average citizen, than in-depth scientific studies, economic issues, loss of opportunities and privileges, just major impacts on, on their daily interaction with wildlife and, and their passion for pursuing wildlife through hunting. The science is there. The science has been presented unequivocally that this disease is potentially decimating to the white-tailed deer herd. But for some reason, that science just isn't selling well with the general public and with our legislatures. Um, you know, you don't want to get into the climate change debate, but it's very similar. 
where you might have 97% of the scientists in the world saying it's real, but a few that are on a payroll that appeases them to be in opposition to the science are saying it's not. Yep. Chronic wasting disease is such a complex topic, and it's almost impossible to have a short conversation about it. And people, everybody that took high school biology has really a pretty good understanding of how bacterial illnesses and, and viral illnesses, how they work and how the uh, immune system plays in that. We could all answer a pretty simple quiz about that and probably get 10 out of 10 answers right. But prion diseases are so completely different in how they behave compared to viral and bacterial diseases that it takes a lot of effort and time for a person to learn how it really works. Brandon, you mentioned the economic impacts. That's easy to understand, but there's just no way we can take the time here to dive deep into the science about how CWD is different. But one other key factor is human health. And it's real easy to overstate this case or to miscommunicate this because the absolute truth is that so far no human being has caught CWD. And it is very possible that like all the other prion diseases, CWD is going to be extremely species specific, meaning that one species can't give it to another species. But we all remember, well, not all of us, but those of us old enough to remember, recall the mad cow disease outbreak in uh, Europe and Great Britain predominantly back in the uh, 90s. When that happened and they had to slaughter millions of cattle, the experts told us that there's no way this disease can transfer to people. And that was the absolute professional word that we heard. And then suddenly people started dying of it. And about over 200 people have died of it so far, most of them right in the initial period of the infection. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to happen with CWD. It doesn't mean CWD can jump from deer to cattle or deer to humans or deer to any other species, but there is no guarantee that it won't. And all of the experts, whether it's the World Health Organization or the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta or the researchers that are focusing on this, absolutely nobody says it can't happen. They say it seems unlikely, it may never happen, but we can't promise and it's not prudent to eat meat that you suspect might be infected. One other big difference about CWD from all these other prion diseases like mad cow disease and scrapie and Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a human variant, one big difference between CWD and those is that CWD is contagious. It's contagious by contact. It's the only prion disease known in history to be contagious by contact. Mad cow wasn't contagious by contact. The only way you got it was by eating infected meat. Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is not contagious by contact. So CWD is different. It's scary. The opposition calls it a political disease, which is kind of a crazy thing to say, but it's actually kind of the opposite of a political disease because politics works on human knowledge in the news cycle. This moves so slow, it falls out of the news cycle. People don't see any emotions. So they don't perceive any threat. And it makes it a big challenge for us to get the word out. So Missouri has this incredible history of citizen engagement in conservation issues. It was an initiative petition process that created the Conservation Commission back in 1936. It was an initiative petition process that created the one-eighth of a cent sales tax in 76. It was a petition that created the Park Soil and Water Tax in 1984. So there's this long history of citizens stepping up and doing the right thing for conservation. And I don't doubt that it's going to happen again with this initiative. People are going to want to be engaged, though. You know, you still hear these old timers from 1976 and before talking about the clipboards they carried, getting petitions and spending a few hours on a weekend out doing that can build a lifelong attachment to a cause. The generation that carried those clipboards is the generation that 
really holds the weight down today, protecting that sales tax from attacks in the legislature. And I see that the people who get engaged with this now are going to do the same thing. They're going to want to protect what they fought for and helped pass. How are people going to be able to help you and how are people going to be able to help the cause? I think it's a great question. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the signature gathering process, what we're going to execute is a hybrid of both volunteers as well as professional signature gatherers. And I think that the listeners have an opportunity to engage with the signature gathering process through a volunteer effort. And I think probably the best way to keep abreast of where we are at in that process is to stay tuned to the Fair Chase Missouri website. We'll have continuing information that's available on the website as well as CFM's website. Because when we get to the point where we're going to be needing volunteers, it'll be an educational process. What exactly is it that we're looking for? What is a, a eligible signature and, and how do you gather those? And then obviously the coordination and execution of that signature gathering process. And I think that it, it is an opportunity, when I mentioned advocacy a bit earlier, to be actively engaged in something like this in the way of gathering signatures is something that can have a real positive impact. I think that contributions can be made in different ways. There's monetary contributions, there's time contributions, and signature gathering component is something where a little bit of your time can go a long way towards the goal that we have to get, which is almost 225,000 signatures this summer. So more information to follow through affiliate organizations, CFM, and certainly fairchasemissouri.com. So things are changing Quickly, with things are moving fast, on the website, fairchasemissouri.com, we are certainly going to be developing a, a volunteer list where people can sign up to help us in the signature gathering and any other volunteer uh, efforts we may need. I'm going to guess we're maybe two or three weeks away from having that up there. We also have a Facebook page that you can go to and, and uh, get in touch with us that way. We have contact information on there. If any of you have any questions, we are more than happy to respond and answer any questions you may have. We talked about, somebody mentioned that I, you know, I'm an outdoor writer. I, I kind of consider myself an, an amateur, uh, frequently in the presence of professionals. But I've been doing it a, a long time, conservation editor for Outdoor Guide magazine, I've been writing about CWDs for probably since around 2000, I would guess, but only intensely in the last five years or so, since seven or eight years since CWD came to Missouri. As I mentioned before, it's such a complex topic, it's hard to communicate with people about it, but it's really interesting to see in this last year how much people are beginning to turn around and really get it, especially when we had that mandatory CWD check station in the CWD zone last uh, opening weekend of last gun season. I think that played a big role in raising the awareness. People are starting to get it. I've had people who didn't know I knew anything about this approach me to ask me about, uh, do you know about CWD? They're spreading the word. They're working on it. And it's uh, that's that's very exciting. It makes us feel a lot more confident about success going forward. It's absolutely showing up much more in the media these days. I mean, if you open up any of the main national deer hunting magazines, there's information starting to be spread through the mainstream media. It's still a lot of word of mouth, though. It's a lot of talking across the fence to your neighbors, no pun intended. <laughs> but literally talking to your neighbors, talking to your friends, talking to your deer hunting partners, letting them know this isn't a hunters dividing hunters situation. That's that's the one that gets my blood boiling more than any is when somebody says, oh, you're dividing hunters. You know, no, no, we're not. We're protecting hunters. We're trying to do the right thing by hunters. And when you look across this nation, less Far less than 10% of people hunt in this country. So it's on us to, to self-regulate our ethics and our morals and stay above board to a, to a point where the general public doesn't have an issue with our traditions. 
And if you go out and you tell the average soccer mom who's never hunted, probably never shot a gun, never will, but doesn't have any problem with hunting because her cousin does it or her brother-in-law does it, knows that it results in meat on the table and the family gets nourishment and enjoyment out of experiencing that wild game. That person's okay. They're not going to be an anti-hunter. But you take that same lady and you tell her that this deer was bottle-fed, named, petted, raised in a pen with all of its friends, then tranquilized, put into a trailer, shipped, released into a fenced facility, and then shot for $10,000. And that totally changes the narrative. That is a not even close to the same ball game, And that is what we have to protect as not just traditionalist, but modern traditional hunters. Absolutely excellent point. I mean, what goes on inside of those fences that's just not hunting? Boone and Crockett Club, uh, I wish I had their statement in front of me. They make it clear that that is not hunting. They will not accept animals registered that were shot behind a fence, neither will Pope and Young. We support, I support hunting, I support all flavors of hunting. I don't care if you use a bow or a crossbow or a muzzleloader or whether you have a inline ignition system on your muzzleloader, big time in favor of what trappers do. This is not a hunter versus hunter battle. This is a hunter versus something that threatens the very future of hunting. When I made a comment earlier about confidence in our polling, that's one of the things that resonated loud and clearly with the polling results is that it really is across demographics. It's across political alliance. It's across rural versus suburbia. People do not in the state of Missouri like the idea of animals being confined and killed or being transported for purposes of being confined and killed. For sport. Well, I mean, correct. we're not talking livestock animals. And that's, <clears throat> no. that's the argument. They're trying to reclassify these deer through the legislative process to be livestock. But they're not going to be treated like livestock. They're not going to be raised to simply be taken to a humane slaughter facility where they're killed and processed and end up on the meat shelf at high V. They're trying to basically fake the process, get classifications as livestock to reduce regulations so people can come in and shoot them for sport. The people that come and shoot these deer for sport aren't coming there because they're looking for backstraps. They're looking for antlers that they just can't seem to find in the wild. They're basically looking for tips on the lottery ticket numbers, a sure win. And then it's a whole false equivalent once they have that sure win because you cheated the system. You basically cheated the experience out of well, it, it's funny you say that, Brandon, because the, the servant industry has been very successful through their lobbying efforts, and they spent a lot of money convincing legislatures that what it is that they're doing is sport and that it's humane and that it's just a form of hunting. I will tell you that the Missouri constituents don't buy it for a second. You can't paint this pretty. The fact is that people across the state of Missouri do not accept the fact that this is a form of hunting, that take an animal, raise it. To your point, pet it, feed it, ship it, and then kill it in an enclosure. You cannot paint that to the constituents of Missouri as something that's an ethical hunting practice. But they try so hard. Well, they and they're, as a point of clarification, they're successful with the legislatures because they've only got handfuls of people to talk with. And so there's, oh. a, there's a contingency inside of the legislature that continues to support the effort. I will tell you that when you speak to people in mass, people aren't buying that. They no. do not like the idea of, the, of this industry. They don't like high-fenced hunting. They don't like the transportation of these animals. It is not supported in Missouri. But this industry, is it's well-funded. 
I mean, this is rich people catering to rich people. And it's it's well-educated. Now, I don't mean the entire industry from top to bottom is full of educated people. I just mean the industry's been around the block long enough and fought enough battles to know the pressure points. They know where to push. They take handicapped kids on dream hunts inside a facility, and then they publicize that to the ninth degree. There's just no end to the, the public relations machine that they try to use to, as you said, paint this pretty. And they do a good job. They hire PR firms. They get engaged in the legislative process. They make significant campaign contributions. It's a top-to-bottom machine. These are slick businessmen that are making a lot of money. This isn't about the sport. It's not about their love of the white-tailed deer. It's about the love of the greenback and the fact that they're lining their pockets with it by eliminating hunting from hunting. You talked about them putting on hunts for for handicapped kids or handicapped people or children. They'll, they'll put on a kid's hunt. That's about the only time you ever see a camera anywhere near one of their facilities. They basically want to stay under the radar until it's time for them to try to get a, an article in the paper or something about how great they are. The guys, the guys that write the big checks to come there and shoot these, these franken-deer, these unnatural freaks of nature that are bigger than anything that could occur in the wild, they, they aren't telling their friends, hey, I shot this drug deer behind a fence. Get the thing mounted and put it up on the wall of their office at the bank and so they can make everybody think what a great and accomplished hunter they are. To me, that's the same thing as it's like stolen valor. It's like you took a good thing and you stole a piece of it for yourself. It's like the guys that put on fake medals as if they earned them in, in, in battle. It's, it's sad. It's a, it's a little bit disgusting. But again, the key factor is it, it poses a threat to the very future of hunting. I also think it's confusing because I think a lot of the people that end up on these killing expeditions in these high fence facilities don't know what they're really doing. I think there's a lot of corporate money flowing around. I think it's somebody looking for a way to entertain clients and potentially close a business deal on an entertainment trip. And you got some big wig who's never hunted before. And you say to him, you want to go hunting? And you're not going to take this guy who's never even owned a rifle or owned a bow out on some expedition to the plains and, and hope that they get something. You're going to fly in, eat five course meal, pay $20,000. This dude's going to shoot a deer within a couple hours of being there. That's going to be bigger than anything any of his friends or anybody he's ever known who hunted has ever killed in their life. And he's going to feel this like sense of, look at me, all the while being deceived not knowing that he's actually not participating in the hunting process at all, that he's not experiencing the intrinsic values of spending time in nature and, and becoming a hunter in the real sense of the term. So there's all kinds of ways, but I mentioned earlier, the owner of the one facility that I was on, he literally told me, you know, it was $25,000 a deer for four deer. He made $100,000 that day. They flew in, landed about 10 and were gone by three. And those people probably aren't the kind of hunters we're around. They just thought that they went on a hunt. It doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> not, no. Not for hunters. Well, no matter what we think about it, and we all think pretty similar things about it, again, it bears repeating. My bottom line is that I don't care what goes on behind the fences. They could do whatever they wanted. It's their business, not mine, if they could do it without posing a threat to the wild resource. But they can't. They cannot do it without posing a threat to the wild resource, and that's why we are stepping up and doing the only thing we can see that can be done to turn the ship around. And I'm glad that you said that because 
as much as we agree, I'm going to disagree because I do care what they're doing behind that fence. And for me, it's exactly the same. It's also about the science, but I care about the morality and the perception of hunters in this country and the ethical standpoint of not going into one of these facilities and faking the process of being a hunter. I think it's our responsibility and our obligation to represent hunters to this nation, to people who do not hunt, to the 93% of people that live in America that do not hunt as pursuit of game animals for the traditional reasons of doing so. Spending time with family and friends, putting meat on the table, experiencing nature firsthand, and essentially to commercialize that experience into a a condensed version in captivity, it, it just, I think it ruins it for everybody that's participating that way. And I want to make sure that citizens across this country, and especially this state, don't think that's what hunting is. Well said. Well, fellows, we're up against our hour, and we've covered a lot of topics. As we've obviously made clear, we could go on and on and on about the science, about the disease, about our individual stances on the industry as a whole. I think there's a lot of room for interpretation to anyone listening as to why this is wrong in your own mind. But at the bottom line, it's just wrong. Uh, It impacts all of us negatively in the future, and something has to be done about it. I just want to applaud the two of you uh, for stepping up and leading this charge. Someone had to do it. It's not an easy task. You're obviously going to be targets. You're going to spend a lot of time, but you're passionate, and you're appreciated. And just really want to thank you sincerely for what you're doing and give you these last couple minutes to to make your impassioned plea to anyone listening for support. Well, Brandon, first of all, thank you. You know, your leadership and involvement and participation in, in our effort is very much appreciated. And, you know, an opportunity like today to sit down and, and talk about this and present it to the listeners in a way that I think is informative, it's educational, it's thought provocative, it gives people an opportunity to take pause and maybe ask some additional questions or to dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more about the disease. And so for that, we thank you. We thank you for taking the time and, and giving us a, a venue and an opportunity to educate what it is that we're doing. And we're appreciative of that. I think that, you know, for from my perspective, it really does boil down to the advocacy portion of this. You know, we really encourage people to become an advocate for what it is that we're doing. And it doesn't make a difference if you're a hunter or a non-hunter. It doesn't make a difference if you live in suburbia or rural Missouri. The reality of it is, is that we have an opportunity to do something special that doesn't come along very often, and that is to have citizens' voice heard on a very important topic. And so I would encourage all of you that are listening to become an advocate, to donate, again, fairchasemissouri.com. As Steve said a little bit earlier, there's donate buttons on virtually every page. There's tons of information on the website. Go to our Facebook page, like it, share it. Again, become an advocate for what it is that we're doing to help us. Because the reality of it is that we are just a couple of citizens, and really what we need is we need tens of thousands of Missouri citizens to become informed, engaged, and elect to participate in the process. And that's what I would leave you with today. When it comes to having tens of thousands of supporters, it's also going to take tens of thousands of dollars. So in a sincere appeal to everyone listening today, just send in a little bit, just what you can, literally. makes a difference. $10, $20. I know a lot of people are donating hundreds of dollars. This is a very important initiative petition, not just for the specific cause that it's going, but to set a precedent once again that citizens are concerned with conservation and that citizens can rise up and support something 
that isn't being supported by the folks that we would hope would support it in Jefferson City. So become part of the solution. Donate a little bit of money. When the time comes, maybe carry a clipboard for a few hours and get some signatures. This is a story you're going to want to be part of. You're going to want to tell your children and your grandchildren that you were there, you were part of the fight, you helped save deer for the next generation. Steve, anything before we close this out? Just keep in mind that that wherever you live in Missouri, this this disease, even if you're not in the CWD zone, it impacts you. Something I forgot to mention earlier, the department just announced this week that they've added several new counties to the CWD zone. Now 41 out of our 115 counties are CWD counties. Nearly half of us live in a CWD county. About two out of every five deer taken in the state come out of a CWD county. These are huge numbers. The impact on land values and the potential for future earnings for all these rural areas that depend upon the deer hunting for their economic health, it's just overwhelming. You know, people talk about Missouri. I think the number one industry in Missouri, I believe, is agriculture. Number two is tourism. And deer hunting counts as a big part of the tourism. People moving around to different places, coming in from out of state or going to a different part of the state to deer hunt. It's just huge, and it, and, and we need to be sure that it persists into the future in as healthy a way as possible. And we've got a threat standing in front of us, and we need you to help us do what we can to fight that threat. At the end of the day, when it comes down to the economic value of white-tailed deer, take out the intrinsic values of, of nature and conservation and just look at the, the economic value of white-tailed deer in this state, and it's a $2 billion industry. You know, so when you're talking about this captive industry, I mean, it's literally just pennies on the dollar. If that doesn't move you, I don't know what else will. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you.